Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to an hour of science with us here on Triple R. In the studio with me is Dr. Laura. Good morning. It's been a while. It has. Good morning, Dr. Shane. It's great to see you. Where have you been? Um, I've been all around the world and back. Science on tour. I'm so happy. <laughs> you on tour? Yeah, the conferences are back up and running. You get to chat science. I love it. Was there a favorite place? Um... Probably New York, always. New York. New York, yeah. always. I thought I you were going to say it. Adelaide for a second there, but... Uh... <laughs> but also, you know, now I get to come into the studio and hear, like, such diverse science, so very, yep. very excited to be here. Thank yep. you for having me. It's good to have you back. Uh, feels like it's been a while, but it's probably only been a month. Yeah, <laughs> Now, we're actually uh, reversing things a little bit today. We're going to do our guests first and our news uh, later because... Something tells me our guests are going to be more interesting than our news, but we'll, we'll see. We'll see. We'll, we'll see. see. We'll see. You know, if we end up doing half an hour of news, folks, you, you know, know what why. that means. <laughs> um, but I suspect that won't happen. We'll probably take up all of our time with our amazing guests today. And first up in the studio with us is Zara Asman. Now, Zara is a PhD student in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Monash University and part of the Ritchie Center at the Hudson Institute for Medical Research. Sorry, of medical research. I always get that one wrong. Welcome, Zara. How are you going? Hi, good. Thank you, Shane. It's lovely to be here. It's great to it's great to have you in the studio. How far into your PhD are you? So I'm about nine months in. So oh, you just started. Fresh. Quite fresh, yeah. Fantastic. That's why you look so happy. <laughs> <laughs> Haven't hit the PhD blues yet? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it uh, it'll hit you three times. That's oh, my rule of thumb. I love to hear that. That's... There'll be three times where you think I'm out of here. I've had enough, and you just got to get through them. Yeah. If you get to a fourth, that's when you need serious help. Um, but three times guaranteed, most PhD students think of walking away. At least that was that was what I was told, and it happened to me. How that's about, about you, right. Yeah. Agreed. <laughs> right of passage. Uh, it's very cool. Now, now you work in this interesting area of like prenatal health and natal health, and you know, and so forth. I wanted to sort of start with you just discussing when when we have babies being what's the term? Do we use gestated these days? Is that uh, made built? They're still yet to yeah, be born. Yeah, <laughs> yet to, fetuses. Fetuses. Um, what like what are some of the sort of more common issues that come up? For, yeah, of course. For so there are a range of different complications associated with pregnancy that both affect the mum and the baby. So there's the maternal side of things, there's the fetal yep. side of things. So some of the most common ones are gestational diabetes, mm. preterm birth, maternal hypertension. But one that I'm really interested in looking at in particular is a condition called fetal growth restriction. So right. this affects up to 10% of uh, babies in Australia. Wow, that's a, that's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And how does that compare to some of the others you mentioned? Are they similar statistics or is this one of the big ones? Um, I would say... Uh, this would be one of the more common ones, but it would things like preterm birth and gestational mm. uh, diabetes would sort of um, be more common, but they can lead to fetal growth restriction. So these right. things sort of come in hand in hand. Yep. Now, when you say growth restriction, I'm immediately thinking that you know these babies come out are they smaller, less developed? What yeah. does what does growth restriction mean in that sense? Yeah. So when we talk about growth restriction, the official definition for it is a baby that fails to meet its biological growth potential. So okay. it sounds like a complicated term, yep. um, but that's just uh, that babies sort of have a, a genetic 
growth potential, a trajectory that they're expected to follow during pregnancy. And growth-restricted babies just uh, don't grow at this rate that they're expected to. So this is different to babies just being born small. You can right. be born small, but not necessarily growth-restricted. Yeah, I was going to ask you that because, see, I was born long. Ah, okay. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It kind of paid off, I think, because I'm six foot. But, you know, some, some babies are born different sizes, you know, yeah. you, and, and twins, I suppose, are a different game again. Like, they tend to be smaller, I think, on average yeah, than I, yeah, they individual are. babies. Yeah, mm-hmm. But that's we're, we're, we're not talking. So, that's something that you can sort of model and you know where that should be yeah. within a certain range. So, the difference, I guess, between being born just small and being born growth restricted is that uh, babies can be born constitutionally small. So, like how you mentioned that you were born long, mm-hmm. some babies could be just always destined to be being born small because of um, you know the way that their genes have predisposed them to be. You can right. imagine someone having a really tall parent that could mean that yep. the baby is expected to be born large. And the same can be said for small babies. Right. So the difference between that and growth restriction is growth restriction is pathological. So okay. they just don't reach that expected trajectory. And this just occurs um, mainly because the placenta, which is the organ that transfers a blood supply, uh, nutrients and oxygen from mum to baby, just fails to function um, right. at a normal rate. Now, when we talk about that growth restriction, I mean, there's there's two things happening here. There's probably 50, but... Just go with me. Yeah. Um, first of all, there's the size of the child, yeah. but there's also the level of sophistication of the development of organs and various parts of the body. Mm-hmm. Does this growth restriction problem affect both of those scenarios? Yeah. So, um, like I mentioned before, because the placenta isn't, um, I guess, delivering the critical, um, you know, things for the baby to mm. grow. Um, the baby often grows in this chronic hypoxic or a low oxygen environment. And as a result, um, it sort of has to adapt to this challenge. So um, it prioritises the growth of critical organs that would be crucial for your survival. Like it would increase blood flow to your um, brain and your heart. And then it mm-hmm. would decrease blood flow to less critical organs like your skin and your gut. Yeah. Um, so these babies um, are like I said, pathological, and uh, they are often predisposed to um, a range of different um, problems like cardiovascular issues and neurological issues. Mm. Zara, there's two things I'm desperate to know. Yeah, is, of course. One is can you detect for this, when, when do you find out that your baby's not small, that mm-hmm. there, is, there is this deficit? Yeah. And two, what proportion of these children, after it's been detected, um, sort of bounce back, you know, within six months of age, you know, can be treated to a level where they're you know, back on track, back on trajectory. Yeah. So I definitely know that you can have this catch-up growth. I'm not quite sure about the statistics, but it does happen quite commonly in growth-restricted babies where they're born small, but later on they have this catch-up growth and they develop um, quite similarly to their peers. Um, And to answer your first question, how do we detect this? So usually you would uh, perform, you know, ultrasounds to check if the baby is growing properly. So if a baby is growing at less than um, 10th percentile for their gestational age, that's sort of a sign that they're born growth restricted. But they could just be born, you know, small, like we mentioned earlier. Um, So... Uh, the biggest signs of growth restriction is when you do an ultrasound on their umbilical artery, you see that there's a reduction in blood flow. So that sort of suggests mm. that the placenta isn't functioning properly. Yeah. Is there anything you can do about that that point or is it just a monitor and Right watch and now, see? Um, there aren't any interventions. I think the only thing that you can do is to deliver the baby early because they're growing in this sort of um, unfavourable uterine condition. Um, they're also at increased risk of stillbirth. So that's right. why... 
you know, obstetricians will often opt to deliver babies earlier. So it's, it's super interesting. Let, let me draw a very long bow here. But you know, yeah. as we know with some, you know, uh, elite sports people, they will often train in higher altitudes mm-hmm. um, for specific reasons because it can give them, you know, I think this is still believed, um, that it can give them certain advantages. Are there any advantages that these children get as a result of having to essentially, you know, develop in a low oxygen environment or a, a restricted environment? Um, so often what we've thought in the past is that because they're growing in such a low oxygen environment, um, they're sort of, uh, you know, because of the way their organs develop and aren't developing at a normal rate, um, they're sort of, um, predisposed to, um, complications associated Mm. with, um, organ, um, organ development. But one of the things that we've, um, sort of identified in our preclinical model of research is, um, that there is a secondary injury that can happen during birth. And this is known as birth asphyxia. So you can imagine during labor and delivery, it is quite a high risk situation. Sometimes a baby can be severely deprived of oxygen. Yep. And so their blood pressures drop, their heart rates drop. Sometimes they can become bradycardic and uh, asystolic. And this is a serious issue in the birth suite. Mm. So an interesting thing that we've sort of uh, identified in our preclinical model is that growth-restricted babies don't seem um, to respond to this asphyxic insult the same way as normal babies do. And they seem to actually tolerate this a lot better. Because they're kind of used to it. Yeah, that's so. That's sort of is that, is that the, the 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 mindset. It, it yeah. seems like um, you know that transition. You know, I mean, I I don't remember. Do you remember being born, Laura? I don't remember <laughs> it, but I'm a bit older than you. Um, but but that transition is so harsh, right? You're going from a, being in a predominantly liquid environment to a, a gaseous environment. Mm-hmm. There is this incredibly. I can't imagine it's fun, you know, <laughs> for any life form to go through the birthing process, yeah. especially in situations where it's not um, a sort of simpler, simple is that the right word to use, less complicated birth, you yeah. know, that doesn't take hours or, you know, whatever else or requires significant interventions. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that, that transition in, in airflow and the way in which we utilize oxygen and so forth, the way it gets into our body, I mean, that, that seems like that's substantial, right? Yeah, for- it is quite a big physiological challenge, I guess, mm. to transition from in utero to ex utero. Yeah, and so if if this is the case, I mean, what what does that mean for these kids? I mean, can we learn anything from this in terms of how we might approach it for all babies? Like, yeah, so it's quite interesting um, right now because we're sort of looking at how they tolerate this asphyxia. We know that when the baby comes out, if they're really low blood pressure or you know the heart rate has stopped, mm. then we do have to resuscitate them. And you can imagine um, sort of the same scenario as resuscitating an adult and you give them CPR, stuff like um, chest compressions, giving them adrenaline. Um, What we found is that these growth-restricted babies actually require these serious interventions a lot um, less frequently than normal babies. Mm. So right now with the um, neonatal resuscitation guidelines, there isn't a specific... Um, way to manage growth-restricted babies. So what we're thinking is, because we know that they respond differently, should there be specific guidelines to um, optimally manage these babies so that they have the best outcomes? Yeah, and that's that's what you guys are working on, that hopefully that will be coming out as part of your PhD? Yeah, that's... Exactly my passion. It sounds great, Zara. Um, this is an area like it's it's uh, so interesting to hear that these babies sort of do better on on arrival in mm-hmm. these um, sort of restricted circumstances compared to other babies, and how much we can learn from that. But also just knowing that we shouldn't treat them exactly the same way as we treat you know all births that have that that particular 
Uh, would you, you use the term insult? Yeah, <laughs> I guess, yes. That would be the correct term. Yeah, yeah. Um, I haven't heard that one before. Mm. <laughs> interesting. But um, thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us today. It's really interesting research, and good luck with your PhD. Thank you, Shane. It's been a pleasure. Keep smiling, and they're only one year in, but, you know, it's, it's going to be great. Folks, we're going to take a break uh, for some music, and when we come back, we'll have our next two guests in the studio – some really interesting stuff uh, with people from the space community, which, uh, you know, I'm excited about, of course. Triple R. Now, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Gogo. It's 3 Triple R. It's a science program. If you just tuned in, don't go away. We've got some good stuff coming up. In the studio with us now is Professor Patrick Humbert, who's a professor of cancer biology and director of the La Trobe Institute for Molecular Science, LIMS. We've had a lot of guests on from LIMS over the years at La Trobe Uni, and also his colleague, Dr. Jens Huslich from the German Euro, sorry, the German Aerospace Centre. I'm just too excited, Jens. That's the problem. People know they listen to the show. If anything to do with space, I'm freaking out. Um, look, you guys are working on some fascinating stuff, Patrick. I'm going to start with you because this is really all to do with cancer and the way the body you know, ends up with cancer. And I've often talked on the show about the idea that we get cancer all the time and our immune system cleans it up, mm-hmm. and that's great. And we live our lives. And then every now and then something goes astray. So you've been sort of going back to real the, the basics of what's going on in an evolutionary sense and looking at a very, very early life form and how some of this started. So talk us through some, yeah. of, some of that about that particular organism first because sure. I think it's fascinating. Sure. So, so probably just to the, the premise, we're uh, very interested in the organisation of tissue. We mm. know that the very first steps to cancer is this disorganisation of tissue. And we're interested in understanding how that occurs so we can maybe reverse as a preventative. Right. That's kind of the idea. Yep. So it's always been about the uh, origins of cancer in that setting. Um, what we've kind of, you know, over the years uh, thought about is, well, when did it all begin? Mm. And can we actually get to the organisms, the very first animals? And they had that problem of going from one cell to multiple cells. Right. And as soon as you do that, then you've got competition between the cells. Right. And you don't want cells to cheat. As soon as you get cheat, that's really the, the first step to cancer. And so, what do you mean by cheat? So cheating meaning that one cell basically becomes fitter than the other. Oh, yeah. It starts taking yep. over the organism, and that's to the detriment of the animal. Right. So yep. these very, very first animals have had to have find a way to actually stop that, and that's really the first anti-cancer mechanism. Interesting. So, our hope is that by actually looking at those mechanisms, we can actually take those to the human setting and really have, you know, have some new insights. And I suppose in, in that sense, like cheating can have multiple forms, right? Gro- growth speed, efficiency, a whole lot of things. Right. Is that- yeah, and it's actually, uh, you know, it's even beyond that. It's not just an evolutionary kind of you know, better fitter that way. They actually, there's an active process that we know in, occurs all the way through evolution, flies, humans, mice, uh, where the cells... Uh, effectively actually kill the neighbouring cells. Right. So it's, a, it's kind of like a, um, a safety mechanism, but also a quality insurance mechanism where the organs, the animal basically gets rid of all the cells that are not quite up to scratch, and, and mm. this occurs during development. Yeah. And I suppose cells themselves also need to, with the exception, I suppose, of jellyfish, but we need to not have immortal cells, right? We need cells that age and die. Is that is that part of the process? Yeah. So it's, there's a, as you would know, there's a very interesting kind of um, uh, relationship between regeneration and cancer and uh, a lot of these very early animals actually such as hydra and jellyfish mm. and the organisms that we're you know, very interested in is actually one of these uh, have um, kind of unlimited regenerative potential 
And so where this stops and where cancer starts is really a very interesting space. And as you would know, you know, there's the, this uh, view of cancer as the um, wound that never heals. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and I think this is really the sweet spot. Yeah. Now, this organism, and I'm, gonna, I'm probably going to mess it up, Tricoplex. Tricoplex, that's it. Yep. It's, um, it's been around forever. It's everywhere, right? Yep. It's a very successful species uh, mm-hmm. all around the world, found just off the shore of, uh, of um, yep, all the different uh, seas. And, and we get them from uh, with the dive club, Elotrope. Oh, yeah, uh, right. so Big shout out to the dive club. <laughs> Uh, they're bringing it from Blagari, actually. Right. Uh, so we have our own species there. But we work... You, you know, don't send them down to Altona Pier? Because <laughs> no. Blagari's pretty nice. <laughs> <laughs> no, exactly. Well, you know, we go wherever the dive club goes. Right. Yeah. Patrick, can you paint us a picture of what this looks like? Yeah. The, you mean the animal? Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So the animal's called Tricoplex, which basically means trico, which is hair, and plex, plate. So it's a hairy plate. And uh, it's about uh, the size of a speck of dust. Lives underwater. Highly motile, one of the fastest regenerating animals. You can slice it, and within a couple of minutes, it's healed. Um, and um, you know, very, uh, very simple. In fact, this is why we're interested. It's not. So, if you want, sorry, if you, we want to make two tricoplexes, you just cut one in half and you get two. Uh, that's it. And in fact, um, you know, in the lab, at least they breed by just splitting in half. So, right. very, very simple. Six different types of cells makes it kind of really easy to analyze. And uh, you know, one of the first ideas for us was to actually use as a teaching tool. You know, just right. because uh, yeah, it yeah. grows on seawater and, and kind of eats algae. So okay, very, cool. very simple. Yeah. And the, and the dive club, like these things are pretty small. So what, what is that like? Are they What's just the, scooping up sand? Yeah, because they're not they're, we've, finding we've them, set right? up traps. Right? All right. So, okay. so basically the traps are, are microscope slides right. uh, that we put into a kind of little box, put it on the pier. You get kind of biofilm forming over a yep. couple of weeks and these things hop on and every other life form you can think of around the pier. So we have a fairly complicated little ecosystem in the lab. That's and fantastic. I'm so glad you explained that because I was wondering how you were going diving for pieces of dust. Right? Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. it's just no, pretty no, important the, to know. The, it's like drift, drift netting. You, know? yes. <laughs> you, you get the odd shark, but mainly it's the trichoplex, right? Yeah. It's, yeah, yeah, it's going to be done very well. Now, of course, there's a connection some here, here with, um, with Jens and his work in the space industry, I mean, what what's what has he got you doing? So I'm a gravitational biologist, so I'm re- making research how gravity impacts life. So gravity right. is the only constant force who impacts the evolution and all, all the kind of life we have. Hmm. And uh, we think that uh, the polarity of cells was also be you know, impacted by gravity or induced by gravity, so have an up and down. So it's really important also plants, they can sense gravity is a... And so they have to know where's up and where's down to right. put the root in the right direction. So and so this this is the connection between Patrick and I. So um, as a gravitational biologist, I'm using all these methods to use uh, to produce microgravity here on ground. So drop towers or parabolic yep. plane flights, yep. and also sounding rockets. And uh, we are using sounding rockets. So uh, we have five to six minutes of microgravity where we can see how these microgravity impacts on trichoplex and also on these different gene groups. Who yeah. are responsible for the polarity. Okay, I got a million questions. First up, um, so there, there's a whole lot of other forces that biological life is exposed to, but even things, I guess, like magnetism and so forth, has not been stable throughout. Somewhat stable, but not yeah. not overly stable throughout our evolution. There's been changes, um, similar with solar radiation. Everything else has yeah. kind of shifted a lot the over there. Yeah, everything shifted a lot, but gravity's kind of. Constant. Pretty stable, yeah. um, you know, throughout. Now, in terms of the when, first of all, gravi- gravitational biologist, first one on the show. Congratulations! <laughs> it's, always a new, it's always exciting when we get a new field represented on Einstein and Gogo. Um, but 
you, you talked about sounding rockets and what so how much can you get from about six minutes worth of zero g i mean is there that much of a change during that period yeah sure so um when you when you look when you look at plants so plants are able to sense 11 seconds of microgravity wow so and also <laughs> okay when you when you when you when you aim to see changes in the genes and also in the metabolism you need uh, more time sure yep. so uh, yep. but it's also within minutes so uh, five minutes six minutes are Oh, it's a good time for us to make good science. Yeah. Um, we had also some bigger rockets, so with 11 minutes, but uh, they quit the program, so we have a smaller one now. But it yeah, works fine, also for the material sciences. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's a rocket uh, that's going around the moon right now. Did they not have any space for some of these little guys for you guys? <laughs> yeah, not, not, not this time around, but uh, I think, uh, again, uh, people that Jens is working with actually have a couple of experiments on right. there at the moment. So. Yeah, on the Orion Yeah, on the Orion. Um, mm, yeah. From my colleague, uh, Thomas Berger, from our institute, from Aerospace Medicine. So uh, he built these mock-ups, these uh, female mock-ups with all these radiation uh, detectors uh, right. to see how the radiation impacts the uh, future astronauts going to Moon or yeah. also to Mars. Fascinating. So you've got you've got this organism that has about six six different cell types. I mean, are they all shifting or changing in some way, or is it just the way the organism as a whole operates that's changing when yeah, it's look, in microorganisms? I mean, one of the fun things about this is not much known. So you know, I guess in terms of stem cells, you know, in terms of cells that can produce all the different types of cells, it's yep. not even known where they are, what what they are. So. It's a fun kind of sandpit to play with. You know, we, we, we're mm. working with lots of people around town that specialise yep. in different areas uh, to bring them in. And um, But um, mostly about 80% of the cells are epithelial cells. This is what interests us. And epithelial cells basically cover all of body plus yep. internal. Uh, and most solid cancers come from epithelial cells. Okay. So this is really kind of why, why we're interested in this mm. particular area. And my understanding is... And correct me if I'm wrong here, but astronauts, you know, have shown signs of physical deterioration in a variety of forms, in, including their like recovery from illness. I think was it Apollo eight where um, I'm trying to remember who it was was quite ill for the majority of the trip, and you know that recovery period is not great. And I guess the link there, the microgravity, is probably a big a big part of that. When you look at the wound healing or the the immune system, um, so you have a big impact from from the microgravity on the on the astronauts. So they also need different or more medication. And Mm. uh, our aim is also to to find these find countermeasures to to prevent these um, when you are long stay in in, in space. So yeah, and do you think um, Patrick? Do you think this will like help us understand that sort of origin of cancer if we can work it out for these simple systems where the you know we take away one of the, the constant parameters where you know we sort of in a sense it's like using a particular preclinical model like a mouse model where you amp everything up and you're sort of amping everything up with microgravity is that yeah so so i think uh, as you would know uh, the last 10 years maybe uh, uh, the mechanics that of biology so mm. mechanics Mechanobiology has been really kind of up and coming, and we are starting to understand that pressures, uh, tension, all these things play a huge role. And obviously, things like breast cancer detection is right, you know, right in that space, in terms of uh, you know, density. Um, so the mechanics are really important, and, and gravity is one one of these forces that we can uh, utilize. And the other advantage of these animals, as we said before, so, so I feel a little bit like peeling an onion. You know, right. over the years of evolution, we've basically have layers and layers of the onion coming through and by going to the very first animals we can remove all this kind of redundancy uh, which makes us who we are um, but actually look
look at the very kind of core mechanisms. So that's yeah. kind of that's our hope, and and you know we're seeing some of that. So. Yeah. Now with with the sounding rockets, I guess um, Jens, you, you send these things up. I mean, you you know, they come back down somewhere. <laughs> how, how well managed that because you, these sample cases i'm assuming are not the size of cars you know they're relatively small you've got to be able to find these things locate them quick before you know i don't know some farmer or you know some city folk like laura just go oh what's this i'll see what's in this uh you know behind door number two i mean how do you how do you control that in a way that's you know keeps the science at a level that it needs to be yeah so uh, we perform it in, in sweden so right. um and so the whole flight um you have to imagine uh, 15 minutes just yep. 15 minutes so and there's a landing area so we, we have totally control so we can better go back our samples directly so with a really early return so normally the time from the laboratory to uh, to the laboratory back are one hour in the best case so in the perfect case so normally in two or three hours so um, it's a good tool for us it's also cheap comparable to to, to space station and also to, to yep. shuttle or shuttle was quit sure yeah um, but for us a perfect tool so yeah. It's, yeah. it's pretty also no, I was just, I don't want to interrupt you. I was just going to say, this is amazing. People have got to be listening to this thinking this is so abstract. Rockets, yeah, yeah. gravity, and cancer. That's um, some very, very next level. Um, That's cool. Science coming <laughs> together here that you, you don't really think of these things. Yeah, so I've got too many questions. I've got another yeah, one now. Yeah. So, first of all, you know, we're talking about microgravity as affecting these cells, which is something that obviously is um, going to be studied. But during launch, we're talking about substantial forces on these yeah. cells I, I expect exceeding you know 10 g i'm not sure what they would exceed during the launch of these rockets do, do we know what happens there with regards yeah. to the cells so the importance experiment is uh, the ground control always so when mm. you do gravitational biology so the ground control first and a lot of them uh, doing a lot of controls then you can use uh, centrifuges to um, simulate the uh, the launch and right. also yeah. the, uh, the yeah. acceleration during the launch and see what's happening so what's in the laboratory so first make the ground controls so simulate it you can also simulate microgravity on ground with kleinostats it's, uh, you have to imagine it's, an rota- it's a rotatable axis or a room mm. a chamber with a rotation perpendicular to the gravity vector but it was a really small diameter, so maximum three, four millimeters. And when you rotate these axes around 60 to 90 revolutions per minute, then you can generate a kind of microgravity. You prevent bodies, cells um, um, for the uh, sedimentation, so they describe small right. circles yeah. inside of a tube, and uh, this is a kind of simulated microgravity or functional weightlessness. Yeah, yeah. It's and. I wanted to ask you, Patrick, because like you're, you're the you're the non, you know, aerospace guy here. Yep. Um, have you managed to score yourself a ride in one of the planes that goes in the arc so, or so, something? Has, so has it gone? Not quite yet, but um, spent two weeks with the last uh, mission, which was yep. fantastic, and and uh, it's a pretty amazing process. You go imagine there's 30 people there. There's six mm. or seven different experiments going in the rocket. Yep. So anything yep. from particle physics to, yep, you know, this biology. And um, you know, there's a there's a rocket team to actually make sure the rocket fires off. There's engineers because you can imagine that all the pods and those are right. you know highly tested, very complex, and everything's got to happen automatically in space. So you know, there's a lot a lot of testing going through, and then biologists in the middle of that trying to kind of put the experiments in there. So very amazing to see this kind of multidisciplinary project coming together, and these two weeks for the launch where there's literally it all culminates to this one rocket going off in yeah. the air. Uh, it's pretty amazing to actually see it go off at that time. Yeah. Yeah. So. I couldn't be more blown away or impressed like <laughs> to see what was on that rocket and the different types of science that are happening going into that rocket. That's so exciting. Is there any sort of lead or, you know, kind of first, you know, like your, you know, potential thing at, 
link between gravity and cancer and sort of reversing that, what's your number one lead? Uh, at the moment with this rocket, so we're still, we're still analysing the results and, and looking at kind of genes going mm. up and down. From the, from the ground-based work, in terms of the simulation of microgravity, I think we've seen changes in the programmes that can affect cell polarity. So we think there's some interesting things there that, mm-hmm. that uh, are linking there. Unfortunately, we're still waiting for some of these experiments from yeah. space in terms of getting more information. But, um, you know, the next one for us, we know the animals survive. They, they thrive. Well, thrive. Mm. They live. They live. Uh, and... Um, and the next one is really uh, about testing kind of some other wound healing, for example, and really looking at that. And because of the short time frame and because these animals heal so quickly, it gives mm-hmm. us kind of that window. And that's kind of another choice, you know, for this animal. Because it's so small, we can do these types of experiments yeah. uh, pretty well. But yeah. we're working closely with Jens and this team to yeah. design these. Jens, before we let you go, just one last question for you. Um, we, we have relatively limited data from human, you know, spaceflight with regards to this sort of thing. I mean, we have a lot of people all the time on the ISS and they yeah. get there's a lot of data there in you know relatively close um, orbit of, of Earth, what a couple hundred kilometres, four, was it four, 400, 400, 400 kilometres? As I always say, closer than Canberra, um, <laughs> if you look straight up. Yeah, but not that far away. Um, we've had a few days stay um, on the moon, you know, during the 60s, of which we recorded some biological information. Yeah. But if we're going to put people on Mars for long stay, where the the gravitational you know, effect there is quite different. Do we expect to see problems with health as a result, forgetting everything else, every other hostile element of Mars, which is a bloody hostile place, <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. right? But, you know, we're just going to have a very different gravitational field that they're going to be under. Is, is there an expectation that we'll have problems because of that? Have a guess? Yeah, maybe. So I'm quite, I'm quite sure. that. So it's, it's altered gravity, 0.36. Mm, yeah. And uh, we see that... Um, when you're, when you're a short time in, in microgravity, also on ISS, you have a really heavy impact on your yep. body and your yep. muscles. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think when you're on Mars, you will feel it, and it needs more time that you can see the impact so on your yeah. body. But I think it's, you, will, you will see a lot of effects. Yeah, it'll be very interesting to study, and I'm sure we'll be studying that intensely when we, when we put people there because you know, it affects your cardiovascular system, affects everything. So, yeah. 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 Patrick Jens, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. It's great to see this collaboration coming together between, you know, space and biology. Yes. And I think uh, Dr. Laura knows now how boring her lab is by comparison. <laughs> There's so no boring. space element. Um, that was going to plug. Yes, absolutely. Know, for, the workshop for, coming up. Yeah, we've got a, a workshop and uh, we're still taking people. It's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday at La Trobe University. Um, please check out the Triple R Twitter handle. Yep. We'll, we'll kind of retweet the information if anyone's interested. Graduate, postgraduate, whoever is interested, mixture of engineering, physics, biology, but learn everything that, that can be learned in that space. Absolutely. Free workshop. Sounds great. Thanks, guys. Good to have you in the studio. And uh, we're going to take a short break, folks. And when we come back, we're going to be talking to a researcher about COVID. Believe it or not, we don't normally talk about that on the show, not from a research perspective. We're trying to avoid it because you can just hear it everywhere else nonstop. Uh, but we've got a guest coming in from the Walter Eliza Hall Institute. Here's some important station announcements. Triple R. Uh, welcome back, folks. You are listening to Einstein and Gogo. We have our fourth and final guest in the studio now. It's not often we have four guests, is it, Laura? It's, no, it's uh, exciting. It's exciting. Uh, Stephanie Barter is a PhD candidate in the Pellegrini Laboratory of the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute of Medical Research. Welcome to the studio. 
Thanks, Shane. Happy to be here. It is good to see you again. We were in a little session I was running with you and a few colleagues recently, and uh, you were talking. You, you guys were all giving presentations. I was giving some half-baked advice on, on communication, <laughs> and you started talking about COVID, and I was thinking, we haven't actually had a guest talking about the virus itself. Yeah. On the show since um, the start of the pandemic, which was surprising to me, actually. But I realised that everyone just wanted to... We wanted to keep it light. Keep it light. You know. (laughs) (laughs) So how far into your PhD are you? So I'm about one and a half years in now. But I have to say it's been a very intense time. I mean, working on COVID, doing COVID, it's just fast-tracking research, I think. Yeah, it kind of be like uh, working on asteroid sort of um, trajectories during an asteroid collision. Yeah, I guess so. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Um, now, tell us a bit about the virus, though, because we, we hear a lot about people being sick and what that means and hospital numbers and et cetera, et cetera. But what is this virus? I mean, what does it do to the body when it enters our body? Yeah, so our research is actually mainly uh, trying to understand what happens to our cells when we mm-hmm. get infected by the virus. Yep. So we're not virologists. We're actually really good at understanding what happens to our body if we get infected with a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. So we also looked at bacteria and parasites. And when the virus came along, it was our lab was just perfect uh, to understand how the virus is actually interacting with us. So we are hosts from the virus. Yep. We are just uh, – and if you say host, I think you can think maybe about a party. You're just like at a house and you invite some friends over and you maybe someone rocks up uninvited and you actually just – wanting to have a good time but the virus is a host that you kind of wasn't weren't planning to have in your party and we want to understand what is the body actually doing when it sees the virus Mm. and there are a lot of different reactions you can have to that you can be like could you please leave and just go on with your life Uh, but some people seem to overreact to the virus and call the police and then the police end up making this huge mess in the body and there are a lot of different possible symptoms with COVID-19, right? So there's a lot of possible ways that our body can react to this virus. And we're trying to understand what are those ways, what is causing the virus to cause uh, us to overreact to it, causing severe disease, because COVID-19 is a disease mainly driven by the host. So Mm. it's our reaction that is making us sick. And we want to understand which proteins and which genes are actually being important uh, in those severe cases of disease yeah. so essentially when the virus comes into our body our, our body sees something foreign and wants to wants to kill it is that the yeah. or because uh, i know you know if you think about our bodies we have so many forms of bacteria and so forth in our bodies that are beneficial exactly that we need and there's some viruses that we live with you know herpetic viruses and other viruses that we live with throughout our entire lives that don't necessarily um, get killed yeah. by the body so why is it that the body wants to you know go so heavily after something like SARS yeah it's all about an equilibrium right our body has is so good and actually knowing what is good for us and what is bad mm. for us but SARS-CoV-2 infects our lungs and once it it gets there, death of cells is mainly one of the first mechanisms that happens. So a cell that gets infected, it doesn't want to be infected and it wants to protect other cells. It does that a lot of times by just sacrificing itself. So the cell sees the virus and it's in them and one of the first mechanisms is like, okay, then I'm just going to kill myself so other cells don't get infected. And it's a really important mechanism of defense. And it's one of the main things we started wanting to understand is how are those cells actually dying? And why is this death in some patients, for example, causing this overreaction of mm. the body? And is it the type of cells in the lung that are being infected by the virus? Or is it something about the virus that kills the cells more? So... 
It's uh, the death of cells is a usual reaction to a lot of different pathogens. So, and there are different ways that the cell can die. And the virus firstly infects uh, cells in the lungs, uh, in those severe patients mainly. And if we if we understand how those cells are dying and why some of those cells die in a way that causes the immune system to overreact, we can try to stop it. And we are at a point in our research where we we were able to pinpoint that to a few particular proteins that those cells are actually uh, expressing and expelling that are making the immune system um, overreact to it and go into this uh, positive feedback loop of a lot of mm. uh, proteins that are bad for us. Yeah. I know the last time um, we spoke, you mentioned this term cytokine storm. Yeah. What, what is that? That, that? that sounds to me like the whole body's reacting in a way that it shouldn't to something that's more localized? Or is, so the cytokine storm is a very systemic response. And this is a, a big problem with COVID. And it doesn't start like that. It starts with a few cytokines that are super important for us to actually be able to fight against the virus. So cytokines are like words, like we are talking to each other. Cells are always talking to each other and they're like, oh, look, I think, I think we have COVID. Let's do something about it. But sometimes they end up being very expressive about it right. and expelling a lot of those cytokines, which is just, they keep saying, oh my God, we have COVID. Oh my God, oh my God. And this- Around the whole body. And that's a yeah. cytokine That's storm. a really big party. That's a bad yeah. party. <laughs> it's a bad party. It's like a war. And yeah. The cells are like in constant war and inflammation is that. The cells end up starting a war and the war ends up damaging ourselves. And, and why is our immune system, I, I suppose in that sense, maybe we don't know this, but making that error? Because presumably you know, if I'm one of the cells and some of the cytokine chemicals get to me and I look around, I'm like, well, there doesn't seem to be any problems here at all. Why am I going to freak out? And, and yet this, this sort of development occurs and then it occurs more and more and more. And presumably our immune system at that point should sort of dial it back, but it doesn't. Yeah. Do we know why? Um, so our research is uh, focused on understanding what is happening during severe disease. And if we look, there are other groups doing research. There, a paper has recently published in Nature uh, trying to find out in humans which genes are actually important uh, to cause severe disease and, like, what is different in a patient that actually has more COVID than other patients. Mm. We found a way of modeling this severe COVID and we're trying to understand what is happening and then we have to back, go back from this uh, model from the lab back to humans to notice which are actually the genes in humans. So there are kind of two different lines of research that have to go on in parallel with that. Yeah, interesting. And does this mean a different type of approach to treatment? Because we, we hear the term antivirals all the time, but and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but that isn't something that affects the cytokine release, is it? That's no. something different. So no. this would be a, a different approach to treatment? Yeah. So I think the first treatments that started emerging for COVID-19 were based on the virus. Mm -hmm. And then at some point, uh, people started to understand more and more about the disease and how it's actually driven by our bodies. So a lot of the treatments for severe COVID-19 are actually based on ourselves. We look at proteins that we have too much during severe disease, and we want to reduce those proteins specifically, uh, rather than uh, rather than attacking the virus because severe patients, for example, they still can still have symptoms after two weeks, yep. even though they don't have a lot of virus anymore. So we don't need to reduce the virus. We need to reduce what's happening as a reaction to it. Are there other viruses that do similar things to us that we know commonly? 
Yeah, so uh, SARS-CoV-2 is very similar to the original SARS, for example. Um, And that's an example that I give a few times uh, trying to explain what is SARS-CoV-2 because people remember the first SARS back in 2003, maybe. Um, And the disease was quite different. It was also more severe. Um, I think that's mainly also a good reason why it didn't spread so much. People were getting really sick and it was way less contagious than now. So COVID found this really bad sweet spot of being very infective and not too too deadly deadly. uh, that is causing so many problems now yeah and i I have some vague recollection from your um your presentation that i saw previously about these things popping up throughout history very similar viruses tell us about that no uh what you have in mind is a timeline that i put up uh, about different pandemics uh, during time i was just really interested to know why why viruses come and go, or not mm. even viruses. It can be parasites, it can be bacteria. And all of the pandemics that we had, we didn't have only one time. So it came multiple times, or it was viruses that were derived from an Early original versions. virus. Yep. And the best example is influenza. Like, right. how how long have we been having flus? I think it's since the uh, 1700s, so very yeah. long time. Yeah, Comes I think and goes. it's an interesting one, influenza, whenever people often will say to me, you know, like, oh, you're on your fourth booster for COVID. You know, this is never going to end. I'm like, yeah, I'm on my 27th one for influenza. <laughs> like, yeah, that's, but, but that yeah. is helpful. You know, like it's something mm-hmm. that we have to keep in front of, and it sounds likely that we'll yeah. have to do something similar with Yeah, um, so we'll never COVID. get rid of SARS-CoV-2, so we have to find ways of helping the patients that are actually getting sick and understanding why are they getting so sick and how can we stop them from getting yeah. so sick. Yeah. Now, before we let you go, Steph, I I understand from what you sent to me that there is a P3 facility at Walsall and Eliza Hall Institute. I've had so much to do with this institute for decades, and I did not know this. Tell us about that. Yeah, so we have a PC3 facility. PC stands for uh, a containment facility. It's Mm -hmm. just like the level, a physical containment level of the labs. So most of, uh, we work with so many different pathogens, so virus, bacteria, parasites, whatever is happening. Uh, Most of them are, we can handle on the level two lab. But the really dangerous ones or the ones we don't have treatments or very good treatments for it we have to handle it in a special lab so there are a few r locks that bring you to that lab only a few people are allowed in and there are only a few methods they're allowed to do in this lab so everything's very controlled and you have to put like special scrubs and a plastic suit and a plastic hub and carry like this battery around in the lab. And Steph, yeah. the reason Shane's asking is because he wants to come in and try on the space suit. Yeah. <laughs> or is that why Death well, is coming yeah. up but right now? There's a P2 facility at the Doherty, is We've that right? We've got a PC3 as well. you got the three as well. Because I remember when the Doherty trying was trying to make being, connections yeah, to when wear that Doherty suit. When the Doherty was con- constructed, I was lucky enough to go on a tour during constructed yeah. back in the days when you could walk through that facility before it was brought online. And it was amazing just like the doors and so forth, these huge, big, heavy doors. And you I know, think the, Shane is sad that you haven't invited him yet. <laughs> <laughs> Surely between the two of us, you uh, can get into that suit. You'd think yeah. you'd get into that suit sooner or later, wouldn't you? And uh, just play with the pathogens. That's definitely at the top Take of my list. Take some selfies. <laughs> we won't let you play with the pathogens. Yeah. <laughs> Steph, it's been great having you on the show. Um, how long have you got to go on your PhD, do you think? Hopefully only one and a half more. <laughs> no, that's not too bad, yeah. Well, at least you've got uh, a... A wealth of material to be examining. And yeah, it's hope, a very interesting topic. Yeah, and yeah. certainly you're you're doing something that if it you know good results come out, the impact presumably on on society will be enormous. That's what we hope yeah. to have. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having me, folks. That was Stephanie. 
Marta from the Walter and Liza Hall Institute. We're going to take a break for some station announcements and then we'll finish up the show with some news from Dr. Laura in a little bit. Triple R. Uh, welcome back, folks. You are listening to Einstein and Gogo. We've got about eight minutes to go. I wanted to mention briefly that uh, for those of you who have been watching or interested, the Orion spacecraft is in a fairly, what we call a retrograde, distant orbit of the moon at the moment. So what that means is it's uh, in an orbit that's a fair way away from the moon, and it's also traveling around the moon, the moon in a what we call a retrograde direction, which means it's going in the opposite direction to the direction the moon goes around the Earth. And it'll hang there for a little bit and then eventually come back in closer to the moon and slingshot its way back towards Earth for a return, I think, in about a week. It's all happening. Sorry, Dr. Laura, you're back from the bathroom break. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for announcing. Oh, yeah, you know, I like to keep people informed about what's going on behind the curtain. So to speak. Uh, it's all activity here. Yes. So anyway, Orion's going great. Um, collecting lots of data. Um, there's some images online, some cool stuff. But um, this is the precursor, of course, to returning to the moon for human settlement one day. So pretty interesting. And just hearing about some of this biological research I about know. cancer treatment, if you're ever wondering why we do this, there you go. All sorts of things to learn. I'm so excited. I want to put some stuff on those rockets. <laughs> Well, you know who to talk to. Oh, now. no, thank God. Yeah. We just, it's great right, just meeting the people who are emails? doing it. Yeah, 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 very good. What's happening in the big world of news? So I came across a really exciting um, super landmark study that was published in Nature this week, so you know it's important. And it actually really <laughs> um, leads on very nicely from um, our last guest, Stephanie. It was actually talking about why a lot of these um, outbreaks of viruses are popping up when and where. And a lot of um, viral outbreaks are actually coming from the bat. Now, from, uh, the bat. F- from bats. bats yeah. Did you, you know, scientists I are pretty, pretty much, well, they are lovely, remarkable, but also completely terrifying. So it's well agreed now with scientists that um, bats were the host reservoir of SARS-CoV-2. Mm-hmm. Um, bats carry tons of diseases and they do so without it bothering them at all. So deadly, tons and tons of viruses that are deadly to humans and bats do absolutely fine. They have incredible, incredible immune systems, Mm. which is why so many immunologists, especially in the wake of the pandemic, are seeking to understand the bat immune system, which is completely amazing. And um, also just thinking about, you know, the you know, the the cancer and space and gravity. Bats are also um, remarkably resistant to cancer and they really don't age the same way as other animals. They actually do really well in DNA repair. They live to the age of 40, which is remarkable for their yeah. size. I think it's fascinating how some creatures don't really get cancer. Like, I think lobsters as well. Oh, are, I didn't know that. Yeah, I think, I think it's, it's one of the crustaceans. I think it might be lobsters. One of them don't really get cancer. And you know, yeah. the, it's, there's so much to learn from these animals, these species who've got it all worked out. Yeah, They're just, and, and they've just been the same for a very long yes. period of time, evolutionary And absolutely speaking. fine, yeah. Yeah. until humans come around and disrupt stuff. Yeah. And that's exactly what's happened with bats. Mm. So um, this in this study, um, they actually tracked, it was in a US-led study, but they tracked um, Australian flying foxes. And the reason why they tracked um, our flying foxes is because they are the, um, the host of the reservoir of Hendra virus. Right, now, yeah. Hendra virus, mm. Australians will have heard of. It's a very, it's an Australian virus. Well, well it's been found 
the only cases of Hendra have been in Australia. Yeah. And this was first tracked in 1994 in Brisbane. And it was found in horses and it was found in some of the um, people who were tending to the infected horses. And um, there's only been very, very rare bouts of Hendra from 1994 to now. It's very, very rare. It um, transmits to horses and even rarer so that when it in tracks to humans but when it does so it's incredibly deadly so right. seven people in australia have had hendra four of those people have died oh, wow. and in okay. horses three out of four infected horses die and it's a respiratory pathogen it's not very nice it comes from the bat and um, as i mentioned and specifically the flying foxes and so what these researchers did was they captured flying foxes off the coast of eastern australia they sampled their blood for hendra virus every three months and together with that they looked at 25 years worth of data of bat location climate change and climate events habitat loss and nectar shortage for bats and the, i'm gonna just give you a little bit of information on the nectar the bats like they like the nectar from eucalyptus trees and that's really important because when you take down the eucalyptus trees or you have climatic events yep, burn them down this is a problem. Yep. And so the motivation was to ask, you know, when are, when are you going to get bouts of Hendra and, and what are the events that cause this? And what then, what can we do to prevent it? And the answer that they found was actually pretty simple, that the bottom line is if the bats are well-fed and they've got lots of eucalyptus nectar, you sample their blood, there's no Hendra. So is that, is that they're suppressing Hendra? Yeah. So they've and got it, but they're suppressing it? Well, they, they couldn't sure. find, well, actually not sure, but they couldn't find the virus in their blood. If they're okay. emaciated and they're looking really malnourished, high, high levels of Hendra. The Whoa. thought behind that is that um, the they need the immune system to keep the virus in track. Yep. So you have a food shortage, you don't have the energy to keep your immune system up. Maybe they had the virus in the other ones, but they weren't really, they mm. didn't have high viral loads. But when they're malnourished, the viral load's up and they can disseminate the virus. Right. But they don't die from Hendra either. But they don't die because bats are amazing. They're amazing. Yeah, bats are amazing and freaky. And so, um, what they correlated this with, and this is so amazing because it allows us to actually predict when viral bouts may occur, is one was climatic events. So, if there's an El Nino event, climate, we've talked about that a lot on the yep. show. So, I now know what that is. Roughly, you have big droughts, you have a wipeout of eucalyptus trees. Hendra would follow right around from that. You would also have bats with high levels of Hendra if they've relocated into smaller colonies away from if they'd been um, urban developments or agricultural developments of their natural habitat. They relocated and often to agricultural kind of paddocks where they would change their um, food to, say, fig trees. Right. They don't do very well. High levels of Hendra, direct line into horses, spread the virus. <laughs> and so um, the... What they also found on this bounce back is that if you had this very, very rare winter, and this is really remarkable and tells us what we can do, if you have this large flowering event during winter and a blooming of eucalyptus trees, no virus, no spillover, no hendra, right. healthy bats. Bottom line, keep the bats well fed, you can prevent the gnats pandemic. Yeah. So it gives us a direct line into we can predict, predict if you're going to have an outbreak, if there's a load of virus, and mm. what can you do about it? Yep. Feed the bats. Yep. And it's, it's a really clear example, too, of people have been talking for many years with things like, you know, ice melting in various locations of the world and, that and the release of pathogens. But it's not just that. It's also the impact of climatic shift on existing ecosystems and what that will do if they're out of balance. And Absolutely. I think that. You know, nature doesn't like being out of balance. No, it does not. And it tends to correct. And that these days tends to be correct us. <laughs> so not to mention the horses. Yes. So yeah. And we actually don't really know what other things might be affected by Hendra down the track if Absolutely. it spreads further around the world. So yeah. 
Thank you, Dr. Laura. Very interesting stuff, and I think um, yeah, a good message in there, but it's, it's great to see that direct connection being made. So keep the bats healthy. And keep you're right, the bats healthy. They're amazing. They're, they're fascinating creatures. Folks, in a moment, we are going to hand over to the amazing team from Eat It. I can see Cam and Matt Stedman in the studio next door are ready to go. You've been listening to Einstein and Go. Dr. Laura, great to see you again. Thank you for having me, Shane. Fabulous show. See you again next month. And, folks, until next uh, week, have a fantastic Sunday and week ahead. And I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere. We will chat to you again in about seven days. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein and Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.